We are in, or you are in, uh, chapters 5 and 6 this morning, which is where we're going to be focusing our attention on this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to read for us a little bit. I thought it would be good to read it. Exodus is a great narrative text. Uh, we preached through Exodus already. And I absolutely loved it. So when I was uh, praying and prepping for it this morning, just to reignite it, such a passion in my heart. It's a great story, and I think you guys are going to love going through it, just seeing who God is and how beautiful the gospel is and is on display through this uh, text. So I'll read for us, uh, and we'll pray, and then we'll jump straight into our text this morning. So Exodus chapter 5, I'm reading from the NRV, the NRV will pop up on the screen too, if you don't have your Bibles with you, it will pop up on the screen. I just think the NRV reads nicer for this kind of stuff. So from verse 1, I'm going to read until verse 8 of chapter 6, is where we're going to start this morning. So afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues and with a sword. The king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep uh, working and pay no attention to the lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced at all. And so the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. And the slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Come, com uh, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelites overseers that they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and, appeared and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told make the bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. Um, you will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. And the Israelite overseers realized that they were in trouble um, when they were told, You are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. And they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and to his officials, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, 
He has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do. You'll see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will not let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as to God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, uh, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am um, your God, who brought you out under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land that I swore and uplift, with an uplifted hand to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is God's word. Father, as we come to you this morning to uh, reflect and to hear the message preached about this great story of your people, the Israelites, of being rescued and redeemed, pray, Spirit of God, that you would open up our hearts, enable us to see and to hear and apply this truth to our own context and to our own lives. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Have you ever heard of that saying, out of the frying pan and into the fire? If you haven't, what it means is when a bad situation goes to an even worse situation. About 2008, uh, my wife and I were called uh, to go and uh, visit or see her uncle um, who was in a very bad mining accident. He worked in a gold mine and he was in um, ICU and they weren't sure if he was going to make the weekend and so they called the family down to go and see him. So we traveled three hours on Friday afternoon to go and uh, see him potentially for the last time and um, we saw him, spend some time with him. Uh, we then left the hospital to travel to uh, my wife's um, grandmother's <coughs> house where we all stayed for the weekend and spent some time together as a family. When we arrived, as we um, pulled the car outside the house, and the family came out of the house, they were weeping and crying. We thought that from the time that we left the hospital to the time coming to the house that he had passed away. When we got out of the car, and they told us that the brother of the man lying in the bed uh, in the hospital, and he owned a second-hand furniture business. And like I said, we live in gangster's paradise. He closed up shop for the day after trading, and two armed uh, robbers walked in and proceeded to rob him of the day's earnings. Scuffle uh, followed, and they shot him in the stomach dead. He died. So we came to visit the one brother who was about to pass away, and the other brother was killed that very afternoon and died. It's like one of those stories where things go from bad to worse. Now, that's an extreme story, I understand. It's very far removed from a British 
context, I understand that. But maybe some of you can relate to this saying of out of the frying pan and into the fire. Or when it rains, it pours. Or it always comes in threes. You know, it's just like, can it absolutely get any worse? If you've had a tough time in your life, lo and behold, something else comes along, sometimes even worse than what you are currently going through. And maybe if that is you and you can identify with that, maybe you can empathize with the people of God in Moses' day. Quick recap for us is that there is a new Pharaoh in town, a new Pharaoh in power after Joseph's day, and this Pharaoh is not interested in the people of God, and he begins to persecute the people of God. First, he starts with ethnic cleansing, ordering the death of every baby boy, and then he starts to oppress God's people. He forces them into slave labor. But then there seems to be this glimmer of hope in this man called Moses that God calls to deliver his people. What we found in chapter 4 and verse 31, which is where you might have ended up last week, it says this, And they, meaning the people of God, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped. It would seem that by the end of chapter 4, things were on the upswing. Things were going to get better. But rather, it's a case of out of the frying pan and into the fire. Things are about to get a whole lot worse for the people of God before they get any better. And these two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, I think are really important for you and for us as believers because they remind us that life does not always go according to the way in which we expect it to go, even if God is with us. Even if God is with us, times can be and will be dark. Not always, but there will be times when that will happen. And how we respond to those events tells us, tells you, tells me, a great deal about what we know is true about God. And what I'm suggesting to us this morning is that how we respond to dark and trying times is an indicator of what we know God to be like. Think of it as like an assessment tool. When I go through difficult and trying times, how I respond or react to that is, is a good tool for me to assess. What is my understanding? So how do you act during tough times? What do you say when things are difficult and tough? And what we see in our text this morning is we see two things. The first one is that we see that God's people are very quick to lose faith. They're very quick to lose hope. They doubt God seemingly quite quickly. But secondly, what we see is that God is faithful. God is a God who can be trusted. The two things I want to draw out for us are the people respond and who is God. So let's look at how the people respond in this difficult situation. When trouble comes, they fall at the first hurdle. They don't trust God. They lack faith in God's character. 
if we pick up the story from the end of chapter 4, where Moses recounts to the Israelites all that God has said to him. He performs these amazing miracles before the people of God. He takes his staff. Remember he asked, God, how are these people going to ever believe me? God says to him, take up your staff, chuck it down on the floor. It becomes a snake. He picks up, up the stick. Put your hand inside your cloak. It becomes leprous. And the people of God see these miracles happen before their eyes and they are convinced. They believe the promises of God, that God is with them, that He is about to rescue them from the hands of their master, and that they are to eventually enter into this land, this territory that God has promised to their forefathers. God says, I've heard your cries and I'm going to respond. And the people respond in verse 31, and they believed and they bowed down. And they worshipped. You see, that's their response. Moses, this is what I'm going to do. This is how you are to convince the people that I'm going to do it. And the people respond in worship. They bow down in reverence and awe. And they, they worship the great deliverer of the people. So this is great news. The rescue is, a, is off to a good start. Moses is convinced. Aaron is convinced. The people of God are convinced. Now all that's left is to get an audience with probably one of the most powerful men in the, in the known world at that time and tell him what God has told them to tell him. It seemed like a good plan. It's all going to work out. What we see in verse 1 of chapter 5, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron do exactly what God has said. They give Pharaoh the message. And one would expect, because God has said this is the message that they are to give, that Pharaoh would then respond with, Of course, you can go. Absolutely. No problem. Let me help you pack your bags. Because God has said He's going to rescue His people. So surely it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. What happens in verse 2? What does Pharaoh say? Who is this Lord? Who is this Lord that I should obey Him? That I should let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And I will not let Israel go. And all of a sudden the plan comes to a grinding halt. Pharaoh is not playing ball. He's not in the least bit interested, intimidated, or bothered by this God that Moses talks about. I mean, who is the Lord that Moses is talking about? I am the boss of Egypt. I am the most powerful man around. What happens? Moses presses the case a little more, and he threatens Pharaoh with God's judgments, thinking this might turn him. Verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with judgment or with the sword. This kind of language of obedience or else judgment does not gel well with Pharaoh. Pharaoh responds again in verse 4. Moses and Aaron, why have you taken the people away from their labor? Get back to work. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. And so Pharaoh says to them, look, 
Basically, what you are doing here, brothers and everyone, is a stalling tactic. You should be working hard, but instead, you're a bunch of lazy people. And things are about to get even worse for the people of God. In verses 7 to 10, Pharaoh takes away all the raw materials for making bricks. Now the Israelites have to hunt around for, for straw to make bricks. And they still have to keep up with the daily quota. You can just imagine the mood in the camp. Praise and worship. God is with us. And then this happens. So, hey, Moses and Aaron, how did we go today with Pharaoh? Are we about to head out? Packing our bags? Well, not exactly. What, what, did, what did Pharaoh say? Well, he said, <coughs> he said, uh, work's about to get even harder for you. What? You can't be serious. So things are about to get worse for us. Yeah, things are about to get a lot worse for you. All this excitement from chapter 4 and halfway through chapter 5 just seems like it's just dissipated. Things have gotten a lot worse for the people of God than what they were. All that Moses has done is he has just obeyed God and passed on the message. And then things, instead of things getting better, they get worse. It's like... Don't shoot me, I'm just the postman. Yeah. Just the messenger, delivering the message. And this is not how we sometimes feel as followers of Christ. We, we do the right thing, then often sometimes things get worse. See how relevant the Bible is to our everyday life. In 2012, Andy asked us about us moving here. We were asked to come and replant Cornerstone Church. We felt God was moving us here from South Africa to come to Newcastle and to replant this church in city centre. But although we felt clearly that God was calling us, that He was directing our steps, we very quickly encountered difficulty. Just because God had called us, it wasn't like the Red Sea just opened and we just walked through and all the puzzle pieces just fitted together. It felt like a Tetris game, just constantly... <coughs> difficult time. Things got a lot tougher before they got a lot easier. And the tragedy for the, the people of God is that we think that when God has spoken that it should be all plain sailing. That if we live in the will of God that um, then we will never encounter difficulty and hardship. And this is not true. You guys as a church will at some point, I have spoke with the guys before about the building process of the new addition to your <coughs> space. How long will it take? When will it be done? Well, it's like how long is a piece of string, isn't it? Just when you think you're there, something else happens. How much will it cost? Well, a lot. Just when you think it will cost that much, it costs double. And uh, I'm sure there isn't much clarity on how this will all happen and when and what will the timeline be. But what you do know is that God has called you to be a bigger community, to build a bigger building in order to, to facilitate what God is doing among you. And so as you move forward, you need to trust Him for His provision. It's not always smooth 
sailing, but that doesn't mean that God is not with you, that God is not for you. Take courage. Be strong. Move forward in the Lord. So now how do the people respond? This is when the blame game begins. Verse 14, And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers that they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today, as before? <coughs> then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants in this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten. But the fault is with your own people. The fault is not us. The fault is with your people, Pharaoh. The blame game begins. Pharaoh responds, verse 17, Lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why um, you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. And so these Israelite overseers have no joy with Pharaoh. They plead with them, Pharaoh, please help us out. But they are, what they are met with is quite the opposite of help. All that it does is just winds up Pharaoh. And who gets the blame next? Well, it's Moses. Moses gets him in the neck. Always comes, lands up with the leaders. When they left, verse 20 and 21, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials. You have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This must have been so discouraging to hear if you were Moses. In your attempt to make things better, Moses, all that you have done is make things worse. And I feel for Moses in this situation, don't you? There he is, trying to do the right thing, and instead of things getting better, they get worse. Such a far cry from verse 31 of chapter 4, where the people are excited, where the people are worshipping God, where the people are bowing their heads. It seems like all of that joy has evaporated and been sucked out. And if we think that things could not get any worse, the blame then goes from the Egyptian people and blaming it's your people, and Pharaoh, to Moses, it's your fault, Moses. And then to verse 22 and 23, the blame then shifts to God. Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? This is Moses speaking. Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. It's pretty direct, isn't it, for Moses to speak to God in this way. You would have thought that Moses would have understood this dynamic of not passing blame. But yet he falls into the trap, and even he wants to pass blame. He says, ever since I went to Pharaoh and spoke in your name, things have gotten worse. And you have not kept your side. It's your fault, God, that this is happening to us. 
Now, in one sense, you can understand Moses is, is doing right. His, his gut instinct is to go to the Lord and to raise concern with Him, which is a good thing for us to do. That when we are feeling frustrated, that we go to Him. When we bring our frustrations to Him, the Psalms are full of songs that express frustration, even anger. But Moses here seems to be doing more than that. He seems to be doubting God's goodness and doubting the promises of God to the people of God. The man who spent the last two chapters going to and fro with God, even he's beginning to doubt. It's a pretty grim picture, isn't it? Israel has gone from the frying pan into fire. And all of the hope of chapter 4 has dissipated and gone. We get no sense from the text that Israel trusts God. Rather, they keep blaming Pharaoh and Moses and even God himself. What we see ultimately through this is that the delay in the performance of the promises of God reveals what their hearts are truly like. They don't trust the Lord. If they did, they would know that He is to be fully trusted. He doesn't always operate according to our time scale. Isn't that right? As I've pondered this thought during the course of this week, I see myself in this situation. One of the dangers is that when we go through difficult times, that instead of looking up to trust God, we actually start to look around <coughs> to blame it on someone else when things aren't happening. And as you see, spiritually, playing the blame game can be quite dangerous. When we don't get the answer that we want, that we've been praying for so much about, about someone or for someone for months or even years, the blame game quickly wants to creep into our lives. Maybe life hasn't turned out for you the way in which you had expected it to turn out. Maybe this morning you feel hard done by, by God. Maybe there's a whole series of events in your life that have left you tired and drained and worn out, and you're wondering, God, what on earth is happening in my life? What are you doing in my life? Now, sometimes events can happen that are quite literally just beyond our control. And it's a real test of our faith in that time, isn't it? To trust God, even when we don't get the answer that we want. But the fact of the matter is, is that God can be trusted, which is sometimes easier to believe when things are going well. When life is good and things are happening the way that we want it to, to happen, it's easy to know that God can be trusted. But it's when things get harder, when life gets more trying and more difficult, and things aren't going according to plan, is when the true test of our understanding of who God is comes to play. What I want you to tell you this morning is that there is a ray of sunshine, I think, and that is that God does not dismiss Moses at this point. Certainly, we are often said this, if I was God, I would want to dismiss Moses and the people of Israel. But rather what happens next reveals that God is so gracious, that God is so patient, 
and that He is so loving towards His people. He reveals to them in chapter 6 His amazing character. That He is truly worth trusting. And so we move from the faithless slash hopeless people and we see that God is trustworthy. That He can be trusted. That He is the faithful God. Chapter 6, Moses is reminded by God of his character. God wants Moses to trust him. He wants Moses to know him so well that he has the information to go on to believe the promises of God even when it is dark. How vital is that for us if you are a believer in Christ this morning? A key for us is to know God well enough even when we don't know what he is up to. So what does God remind Moses of? Firstly, he reminds Moses that he is the all-powerful God. He is the all-powerful God. Pharaoh might think that he is God, but in verse 1 of chapter 6, what does God say? Now you will see. You will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. The reality is that God says that I am so powerful that I will cause Pharaoh to want to let the people leave. That's how powerful I am. Pharaoh won't let you go, but in the end, he will drive you out. And actually, Moses, um, you have already known this. Remember, chapter 3, God forewarns Moses. That he would cause Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. So, first one is, God wanted to show them and remind them that he is the all-powerful God. Secondly, he wants, to, um, he wants to show them that he is the faithful God. All-powerful. Secondly, faithful God. Verse 2 to 5. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites from the Egyptians, uh, 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 whom the Egyptians are enslaving. And I have remembered my covenant. He is the faithful God. He says, I am faithful. Moses, I am faithful to my promises. I have not forgotten what I had said to Abraham and to Jacob and to Isaac. I have remembered and I'm going to fulfill the covenant promise that I have made with them. He is a faithful God. It's worth noting that it is not as if God had forgotten about his covenant and all of a sudden remembered like a man taking a nap at his desk in the office and then looking around uh, and thought, that there was something that I was going to do for the people of Israel. And what was it that I was going to do? Ah, oh, there's the post-it note that I needed to remember to do something. No, that is not this case of, ah, oh, what was I going to do again? He, that was not what he was meaning. This is not true. When God remembers, he deliberately recalls to mind and then he acts on those promises. It's also worth noting as well that when God says that he didn't make himself known, to Abraham by the name of Yahweh, it's likely that he's wanting to show them 
a new dimension or a new facet of who he is. And I think as you guys progress through this Exodus story, that you will see this new fleshing out of who God is and what his name means. That he is the faithful God. Will you trust him this morning? He is the all-powerful God. Do you know that this morning? Remind yourself of that when difficult and tough times come. When it's from the frying pan into the fire. Thirdly, what we see is that he is the rescuing God. All powerful, faithful, thirdly, rescuing God. Verse 6 says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I want you to notice the words that God uses here. I'll bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. See, he is the rescuing God. There is no doubt that God would rescue his people. He's not like one of those politicians who over-promises and under-delivers when they get into power. No, what God promises to do, he will do. Will you, this morning, trust him? And lastly, he is the loving God. He is the loving God. Verse 7 to 8. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land that I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. I find fascinating here is that God doesn't just rescue the people and give them the land, which is great to have that happen to you, but rather what God chooses to do is to enter into a relationship with them. He chooses to enter into a relationship with them, which is far more important than, rest them, than rescuing them and giving them the land. He enters into a relationship with them, he says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. What is far more important than any of us having bigger buildings or nicer car parks or anything else would be is that ultimately God wants to have a relationship with you, his people. I will take you as my own, and I will be your God. And that phrase, I will be your God, is a refrain that echoes throughout the Bible with the final reference in Re Revelation 21, where we are told that we will see God face to face. It is the very heart of the gospel promise that God will be your God. God does not save us and rescue us and then leave us to our own devices, but rather He is so powerful and so loving that He actually gets involved with us. He wants a personal relationship with us. He is absolutely committed to you and me. And how do we know that God will do this? Well, verse 8 ends with the phrase, I am the Lord. What he's saying to them is that I will give it to you as a position. I am the Lord. In other words, 
You have my word on this. God says, who I am, my name, I am the Lord, that is my guarantee. And so as I land this morning, if you and I are to follow God, then it's really important to know who He is. Because when we know who He is, we will follow Him through thick and thin. Every day is a new opportunity to live trusting God and obeying God. But you and I will only be able to do this if we know who God is, that He is the Lord. You may have recently become a Christian, or maybe you've been a Christian for some time. Maybe the season that you find yourself in today is instead of life getting better, life is gotten harder. Maybe your life might not have worked out the way in which you had hoped that it would. Your dreams are just that, dreams. And so like Moses and the Israelites, you find yourself complaining about your situation. What does God say to Moses? He says, you will see what I will do. What does God say to you and me today? He says something better. He says, today you have seen and you have read what I have done. You have seen it in the Exodus story and you have seen it on the cross and you have seen it in the resurrection of Jesus. You have seen that I am the Lord who keeps his promises. And Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus. When you're wondering what God is doing, when you doubt his kindness, when you're struggling to trust Him, when life gets harder rather than easier, when you go from the frying pan into the fire, look to the cross. See how, oh, the triumph that the cross brings. See how um, the defeat that the cross brings to our, to our situations. If you are struggling to obey God, you don't need any more willpower. We need to know God more. As you make your way through the book of Exodus, you will see with a greater depth the revelation of the character of God, so that you will know Him better. He is the Lord who keeps His promises. He is the Lord who rules this world and redeems His people. Now we stand and worship this great God. As the band comes up, I'll pray for us. God, as we reflect on this Exodus story, we take great comfort in knowing that life will not always be easy. And even when you have spoken and commissioned things to happen and to be, things can at times get more difficult than easy. But this morning we want to take great comfort the fact that you are a loving God, That's right. that you are a God who 
rescues your people. Father, that you are the faithful God. And that you are the all-powerful God. Help us to remind ourselves, Holy Spirit, bring it to our remembrance. Quicken it to our thinking when things get difficult and tough. That we remind ourselves of who you are and what you have done for us. We have seen your faithfulness. We look to the cross. We look to the empty tomb. We see what you have done. We recount all of the numerous stories throughout Scripture. And that tells us and reminds us of who you are. Help us to hold on to those promises in our own difficult, trying, and tough times. To you be all the glory and all the power and all the honor. We say all of these things in your Son's name, Jesus.